morning. Isn't it good to be here? And we can see each other's faces. It's just great. Wives, be subject. Submit to your husbands. Be quiet and gentle. If ever words were like red rag to a ball, to the mindset, uh, mindset condition by the 20th and 21st century, it would be these ones. Ever since Helen Reddy roared that she was a woman and Nancy Sinatra vowed that her boots were going to stomp all over any man who wronged her, quietness, submission and gentleness have been seen as weakness and servility that we want no part of. This passage just read to us has been misused historically to justify that male domination in the home and in the workplace. But it's also true that the rest of the context of this passage has been ignored, as we so often just take the parts of scripture that justify our own positions. The traditional interpretation of submit quietly to mean go home, let your husband dominate every decision without recourse to you, let him emotionally and verbally abuse you if you give him too much trouble, beat you to a pulp if necessary, um, and make sure you don't make too much fuss about it, couldn't be further from the truth. Today's passage, written by Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, is mirrored almost identically by Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. And indeed, Peter even Peter extends the topic way beyond the seven verses that were read to us. I'm going to refer to both passages and both writers. I'm going to merge them together and paraphrase the whole position. It would go something like this. Be subject, all of you, for the Lord's sake, first to every human institution and law, because God puts these in place for social order, even the Roman government, even the insane Emperor Nero who was tyrannising everybody at the time. In fact, honour and respect some people, the nice people, the ones of your choice? No, all. In fact, honour and respect all. In love, give preference to each other. Not because they're better than you, not because their ideas are better or be for whatever reason, because it's what Jesus wants us to do. Now let's make this practical. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, live considerately with your wives, honour them, honouring them. Children, obey your parents. Parents, don't make it too hard for them. Don't put unreasonable demands on your kids. Now in the workplace, you slaves and employees work hard, not just to keep out of trouble, but knowing that work is God-given. And masters, God demands fairness and justice in the workplace. Fair pay. In the church, 
you young Christians and those new to the faith, allow yourself to be guided by the wisdom of the elders. And those of you who have been around for a long time, don't get carried away with your own importance. But look after God's little flock, as Jesus would, and make sure you're gentle in, your, in the way you give advice. Represent Jesus accurately to people. In fact, let each of you, male and female, slave and master, at every level be mutually subject to each other, outdoing each other, not in asserting your own importance and the fact that you are right, but in giving preference to the needs, even the ideas of others. What if their ideas seems dumb to you? Well, Jesus can work better with a dumb idea than he can with somebody who's you know, stalking round in their pride, putting other people down. You may be sitting there thinking, what planet were Peter and Paul on? Life's not like that rosy picture. Congratulations, you've recognised the real world. So did Peter and Paul. In the context of these two passages, to submit quietly and gently means be agreeable and considerate. Acquiesce graciously, recognising the mutual value of others. Weakness means you allow yourself to be intimidated. But to choose to put the needs of others ahead of your own is not a position of weakness or civility as the traditional interpretation suggests, but of great strength. You might be told, you don't have to put up with that. But in reality, you may not be putting up with it. You may have chosen, out of reverence for Christ, to allow that to just go and not make a fuss about it. You have, in your strength, chosen to acquiesce. Jesus said if someone upsets us, we're to go to them and try to sort it out. Paul said we're to speak the truth, but in love. And Paul recognises the reality that even amongst Christians, relationships can get pretty shabby. When he says, inasmuch as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. People will tread on your toes. You may even tread on somebody else's. But we're not given leave to make exceptions and only be nice to the nice people. Jesus said there's no big deal in being nice to people we love. Even pagans can do that. Loving an enemy being nice to someone who, who isn't going to reciprocate in any way, shape or form is showing that we're developing something of the character of Jesus. Peter adds that accepting justified criticism for our faults is no big deal. That's just being a decent human being. Taking unfair treatment and criticism 
without lashing out is what really brings glory to God. Jesus' life gives us an example of that, doesn't it? Now, I don't know about you, but even justified criticism can ruffle my feathers and I can arc up or ultimately slip into victim mode if I feel unfairly put down. I may not lash out or bite back, but I can go about my business without a word. And what will permeate the atmosphere is not the fragrance of Christ Paul talks about, but the stink of my personal displeasure. Not quite the quiet and gentle spirit precious in God's eyes. Not much inner beauty on display here. To submit quietly and gently to whatever people or events life confronts us with is not a position of weakness, but of a strength not characteristic of our very human nature. We are not asked to allow people to just walk over us and treat us as rubbish and, and carry on and sweetly smile. But we are asked to prayerfully choose a godly response and not just react out of a sense of wounded pride or being miffed. To react is a knee-jerk out of our raw human nature. To respond is to wait and prayerfully think and consider what a wise response and input into the situation might be. We do it all the time, don't we? How can we constantly choose that grace to take everything thrown at us, not as browbeaten victims or with puffed up indignation, but with a quiet, gentle spirit, over and over again, 24-7, and not just occasionally. If that's what inner beauty involves, isn't it easier to just put on some Libby and a nice dress and settle for the outward kind? But the passage today doesn't give us that option. When it said, don't settle just for outward beauty, hair, makeup, jewellery, etc. Your beauty must radiate from within. There was a time, and perhaps those of you who are as old as me might remember it, and it was still around in the 60s, where there were some Christian women around who seemed to think it was an expression of their devotion to God to look drab. There can, there can be a certain pride in this kind of self-denial. It certainly draws attention, but it's not attractive. I don't think it draws people to God. You'd have to have a heck of a lot of, heck of, a lot of inner beauty to draw people when you choose you know, not to do anything about your appearance at all. It is said that most women dress to impress not men, but other women. Are we subtly trying to just be that little bit better, put each other down a little? Some dress to display status. Uniforms express power. Teenagers dress to show they belong to the pack. 
It's also said that you can tell a woman's mental state by the attention she's given to her hair. Now, I'd just like to reassure you girls that I'm not suicidal every second day. It's just that I have absolutely no talent in dealing with um, hair that doesn't want to do what I want it to. We are to look our best without subtly trying to outdo each other. Just check out what's in your heart when you choose your outfit for the next occasion. The story of Esther illustrates beautifully what we've just been talking about. She was not pushy, but she wasn't a pushover. She was quietly submissive, but highly influential. Not through the arrogance um, that her position as queen could have allowed her, but through her respectful acknowledgement of the rights and position of those around her. Naturally beautiful, God gave her, not two and a half hours, sorry, Sonia, a whole year's beauty makeover in a, in a harem. I, I didn't need that much for <laughs> And perhaps you weren't going into a harem. You weren't about to be presented to the king. Now, to belong to a harem it wasn't number one on my you know, uh, career choices. So we don't know whether Esther even wanted to be in the harem or whether she just quietly submitted to that um, as being imposed on her because of whatever situation she was in. But whichever way, her beauty, poise and grace would certainly be needed to be able to influence the king and save the Jews from persecution. She didn't cower in fearful submission to the threats of her enemies, but she respectfully um, submitted to her uncle's encouragement to accept the very scary position that God had placed her in. That, that lovely word, who, who knows but that you were brought into the kingdom for this very reason, was what he said to her. So she submitted. She showed total respect for the king, even for the egotistical rashness of his words that had put him in an embarrassing situation. She didn't expose that. She worked with it respectfully. And she would have no doubt preferred to hand over this position of um, getting the Jews out of trouble to somebody else. But she accepted the situation God had put, it in, put her in. She submitted to it. She showed def quietly showed deference and respect and had an amazing influence on the king and saved her people. Our lives are not historically as momentous as Esther's, I don't imagine, but in our own little orbits. How can we put the needs of others at first or accept life's enormities, not with resentment, but with a quiet, gentle, beautiful spirit that marks who we are? all the time.
I read a quote recently. God asks us to live a life we cannot live with power we do not have. I'll say that again. God asks us to live a life we cannot live with strength we do not have. The challenge of the Christian life is that when we finally realise the truth of that statement, I can't do it, I'm not that person, I am not that 24-7 beautiful, quiet, submissive person. When we come to that place, that's when God has the opportunity to show his strength, his grace, his life-changing work within us. Often we're running around trying so hard to do it all ourselves, we deny God that opportunity. Isaiah gives us some insight when, as to how we can actually develop this inner beauty when he says, in quietness and trust is your strength. You see, it's a position of strength. Submission is a position of strength. We become quiet by being quiet. Be still and know that I am God. It's almost like whatever the problem, that's the answer. Be still and know that I am God. Stillness and quietness open us up to depths we never touch when we're running around striving to achieve our own goals or trying to show that we're really in control and right and better. Jeremiah discovered the voice of God, not in the fanfare, but in the stillness. In Corinthians, Paul says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the Lord, not just having a quick glance at him, beholding him, sitting with him quietly, thinking, thinking about the things of God. When we do that, we're being changed from one degree of glory to the next. To paraphrase Proverbs, we become what we think about. It's in the stillness that we realise God's peace, his love for us personally and his eternal perspective on the day-to-day people and problems that we have to deal with. We learn to see the difference between what we absolutely cannot do and those things that we absolutely must do. And the things we can't do, we learn in the stillness to hand over. Lord, I'm going to trust you with this. In quietness and trust comes strength. We begin to change, and that change is much more attractive than all our fussing and striving. Hosea 14.4 says, I will be, I being God of course, I will be as the dew to Israel. He shall blossom as the lily. He shall strike root as the cedar. He shall spread forth his branches. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. Isn't that something? What a verse. Notice 
how beauty and fragility the lily and strength the roots of the cedar, fruitfulness the olive and ability to influence others, spreading branches and fragrance, all come by exposure to the dew, the dew of God's presence. Dew forms during the dark of night and appears only on a still early morning. It's essential to the, to the life of the plants, roots and foliage. As a result, the fragile beauty of the lily appears. The hidden roots develop the strength to support the mighty cedar through all its storms. In due season, fruit appears. Roots forge a solid foundation, often through resistant ground, to provide certainty and stability for the tree, which in turn provides fruit and shade for others. But all this is unseen in the, in the dark. Paul prayed that believers would be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. The formation and strengthening of our roots in the love of Christ is unseen. It takes place in the stillness, even in the dark of the problems and hard times and our struggles in the night. But God sees and strengthens. As we're still before him, he comes as that essential dew and the foundations of strength and beauty, the lily and the cedar, are laid in our lives. We blossom. Paul says, we are the fragrance of Christ, a blessing to others. What a beautiful image. We can't produce that inner beauty. Self-help manuals will help us change our behaviour. But what we're really looking for, what the world is looking for, is that intangible something that only comes from the Holy Spirit. We can't manufacture it. We can only be open to it and allow it to happen in our lives. God will produce us in us as we submit to him in every circumstance. Spend time with him, trusting him in the hard times that we'd rather be avoiding. Isaiah says, <coughs> excuse me, God will give to those who mourn beauty in place of the ashes in their lives. I've never really understood what Peter said in that passage today about Sarah, about her being a holy woman of God who trusted God and called her husband master. There's very little detail really about Sarah in Genesis and if you read it through, what exists is less than flattering. We know she was for many years the childless wife of Abraham and this caused her so much grief personally and in her relationship with Abraham, that she, um, that she gave Abraham her maid, Hagar, to conceive a child on her behalf. Predictably, this turned out badly, so she kicked out Hagar and the child. 
We know Sarah laughed at the prophecy that was given to Abraham that when Sarah was about 90 or so, she'd have a child of her own. Nothing holy or trusting God could be seen there. But the good news for Sarah and for us is that God doesn't only with people who don't make mess, who don't make a mess of things. At one stage after the Hagar incident, Abraham and his family journeyed to a district called Gerar. Don't know why, there's no indication that God sent him there. But Abraham, the Bible's king of faith, seems to have been at a stage of his life where his trust in God was non-existent. In Gerar, because Sarah was apparently a beautiful woman, he told her to tell everyone that she was his sister so that the men of the place wouldn't kill him to get her. What kind of a place had he taken his wife to anyway? And Sarah submitted to this and called him master. How come she didn't call him a jerk and tell him in no uncertain terms what a coward he was and how he wasn't showing any love or husbandly protection of her in the way he was treated her and he expected her to lie for him into the bargain. But in Genesis there is no record of any dispute between Abraham and Sarah at this point. Not like over the Hagar thing. They had a right blue over that, I think. Now, the Bible account doesn't flesh this out. But I wonder, this is, this is me, I wonder if through her childless trials, Sarah didn't come to accept God's ways in their lives and come to some sort of trust in God for herself and not just piggyback on Abraham's faith that he showed sometimes. God spoke to Abraham as he contemplated the night sky in the desert. Perhaps God also spoke to Sarah in the quiet desert, distilling his dew of his presence into her childless pain, strengthening her roots of trust in the secret place and creating a beauty and gentleness of spirit that would allow her to trust God in the very dangerous and unattractive position that her husband had put her in, in this strange place. Instead of lashing out justifiable criticism, she had the strength to give her husband at the point of his failing faith and deceitfulness some support. Like Jesus, Sarah didn't break a bruised reed or quench a struggling flame. To use an Australian expression, she chose not to kick a dog when it was down, but she dealt gently possibly to her own expense. And God protected Sarah. No one touched her. But the king of that region, Abimelech, came and ticked off, um, Abraham off for his cowardness and deceit. I suspect 
based on Peter's comment. In addition to Sarah's physical beauty, there had developed a presence, a gentle dignity about her, an inner beauty that was somehow a protection. Something about her marked her off as not just another woman to be another woman to be raped because she was there. Did she have the fragrance of Christ about her? Had God given her beauty for her former ashes? Maybe one day in eternity I'll bump into Sarah and she'll say, Oh Heather, it wasn't like that at all. I was scared stiff. If I'm wrong about Sarah, I apologise. But I do think the scenario that I have imagined in relation to her growth in faith does represent the way God deals in our lives and causes us to grow. When in stillness we touch the depths of God's unfathomable love, we see that not only we, but others are precious to God. We handle things that are precious with gentleness, don't we? We're not rough or careless. We don't blame, condemn, criticise, overlook, make demands, have expectations. Not only gentleness, but little shoots of the other fruits, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, meekness, self-control, might actually start to blossom in our inner lives from within. Let us pray. Father, may your presence be as the dew in our lives. May we blossom as the lily. May we strike roots as deep as the cedar. May we spread forth our branches to bless others. May our beauty and fruitfulness be like the olive and our fragrance like Lebanon. To the glory of God and for the blessing of others. In Jesus' name. Amen.